Please turn with me to Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. You can also follow along on page 5 of your bulletin. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of God. The book of Haggai was written at a time when God's people had just returned. Well, what is this? Okay, here we go. Um, the book, it was written during a time after God's people uh, were taken away to a foreign land for around 70 years. The temple of Jerusalem had been destroyed, and, but, but now they're back. They're back after 70 years, and they've been commissioned by God. God commissioned his people to rebuild his temple because it was in ruins. Now, what is the temple? Why is it so important? In short, the temple of Jerusalem represented where God dwelt. So it represented access to God. It represented intimacy with God. This is God wanting to be close to his people. But Haggai's a prophet. Why is he here? A prophet is like a prosecuting attorney for God to his people, against his people. The people had ignored that commission. They ignored the call. 
And so very quickly, because it's Vision Sunday, so if you're here, you would be witnessing the shortest sermon that I've ever preached of all time. Uh, Very quickly, we're going to look at two things. One, Haggai's charge, and secondly, God's promise. It's got everything to do with vision, our vision here. Haggai's charge, God's promise. First, we're going to look at the charge. Verse 1, it begins with a timeline. Verse 1 says, in the year, we're looking at the timeline of King Darius, and then you got Zerubbabel, and then you got Joshua. This is the governor and the high priest. And and in other words, what, what the author is saying is that this is written in the books. This is history. It happened. Well, what happened? The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, and he approached the king, and he approached the high priest with this strong charge, and it is a strong charge. If you read it, it sounds strong to the whole of God's people. You see, typically, when God uh, sends a prophet, you would usually read the text. The text would usually say that the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so to say these things. But here in the Hebrew It begins, and you see it in your text here, the word of the Lord came through Haggai. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Whenever you see that, that's war language. This is is God declaring war. Haggai came as if he was armed, as if God's message was a sword, like a blade by his hand, you see? And he's issuing a charge, an accusation. Verse 5 this is a message. This message is from God. God is ready for war. He references the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see that phrase in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that's the Lord of the armies. This is God's army. Haggai is ready to fight. He's ready for war. And the people, people knew that because in verse 12, it says they obeyed God and they feared the Lord. It was powerful. Well, what's the message? In verse 2, these people, he doesn't even say, my people. He says, these people, they say, the time is not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. But essentially, verse 4, but I'll tell you what it is time for. I guess it's time for you, for you yourselves to be living in your own paneled homes. Paneled houses were a luxury. They were expensive to, to use. They were, they were an adornment, an embellishment, not necessary. And so he says, while I'm living in ruins... You are living in your paneled houses while this house remains broken and, and, and ruins and in ruins. Remember, it took, it took around 22 years to complete this second temple. When they came back, the temple was demolished, and it took 22 years to rebuild the temple, and yet the glory of that second temple, the one that they were building, was not even close to the glory of the first temple. So God is grieved. He's grieved. This is not an issue of a physical building. This is about a relationship with God. This is about the priority of God in your life. What's the charge? God's people have placed their relationship with God on the periphery. And their own lives, what they were building, their careers, their families, that became the priority. We think it's a natural trajectory. As I get older, I'm just going to start acquiring things, and and things get busier, and so I have less and less time. You're trying to fit God in. God says, I'm not a priority in your life. So you come to me looking for power, and you're leaving a relationship with power? You're saying, I want love, and you pray for this love relationship in your life someday, but I am love, he says, and you've abandoned me. 
You come to me looking for advancement and growth. I am life. And yet you've abandoned me, he says. You've abandoned me. Your lives have become the priority. Before, when you had nothing, when you were in the wilderness, they were in this foreign land for 70 years. I mean, a godless, distracted world, a hostile society to the the Lord. He says, when you were in that foreign place, you longed for me. You hoped for me. You starved and hungered and thirsted after me, and now I've brought you back home. I brought you back to your land, and you've become way more focused. You've abandoned me now. You've become way more focused. So in other words, you never came to me for me. You never long for me. You long for things. You're longing. Your idea of growth is more about things, building your life in that sense. You become more focused on building your own homes and your, your own families and your own wealth, these paneled homes, and you've forgotten God. You've not forgotten about God. These people were worshiping. They were praying. They were giving even in their own ways. They were serving even in their own ways. This is the people of God. They were back home. They were doing the things that they were supposed to be doing. And God says, but we are distant. My temple is in ruins. There's, you have no, there's no intimacy anymore. I've stopped being a priority in your life. Now think about this. There were no gross violations here. Nobody's committing any crimes. Nobody's being oppressed. Nowhere here does God say, you know, you are wicked and unjust and you're breaking all these commandments. They broke the top commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Your relationship with God stopped being a priority. You pushed it aside. This is God's people. He says, I know you're worshiping. I know you're serving in your own ways. He says, but I have been abandoned. I've been forgotten. I'm homeless, and I'm in ruins. When you were homeless, when you were vulnerable, when you were wandering, and you came to me, I was faithful. It was a promise, but now you're all in a better place, and you've forgotten about me, and I'm in ruins. And he says in verse 5, I want you to give careful thought. Think clearly about this. You know what that means? Right now, you could be in the church. You could say that you love Jesus, that you love the church, and, and yet still be relationally distant from God because something else has taken over as priority in your life. Lots of heavy emotion here. Lots of heavy emotion. You know why you know that? Two times, verses 4 and 9, God says, my house is ruined. Two times he mentions in verses 4 and 9, you are living in your paneldoms. He's very focused on the way you live. And he says, you are living like this, and you've got all this, and I gave that to you, and I'm in ruins. He's emotional. Anytime you see the doublet in that Hebrew like that, where you see things repeated, that's, that's intense emotion and intense emotional content. It's heavy for God. He's grieved and he's upset. God, in a sense, he's weeping. And he's saying, it's, it's not about you breaking my laws. You have broken my heart. All you care about is building your own life. That's all you're focused with all day, all week. You give me a little bit of your scraps and I'm homeless, he says. My house is in ruins. You are leaving power and you're looking for power somewhere else. You've disconnected from power. You've disconnected from love and yet you're trying to figure out what love is and you're looking for love. You've disconnected from wealth, ultimate richness, and you are looking for wealth elsewhere and you think that's what it is. He says it's sad. Who gave you your job? Who gave you your wealth? Who gave you those homes you live in? Who gave you your children or your spouse, he says. 
who gave you your life? He says, who owns your life? Why did, he, why did Haggai approach the king? Why did he approach the high priest? Because kings, they're about ordering life. They're about ordering things, and life has become disordered in the kingdom. Why did he approach the high priest? Because high priests are all about worship, and the worship has become completely disordered. And he says, I want you to give careful thought. You planted and you eat and you drink and you put on clothes and you earn your wages. This is an agrarian society in those ancient times. So planting is your life. But when you do anything apart from God, I mean, look, in Genesis chapter 3, what does God say? The ground is cursed because of sin. Your work is cursed because of sin. You're going to fail and you're going to cry and you're going to just be just downcast because of your work. You're going to eat. But he says, but it's going to be by the sweat of your brow, which means you're going to be laboring and you're going to be working hard and you're just every day, you're just going to be exhausted, just getting by every day. Fatigue and anxiety and depression and disorder, these kind of things, is just, this is just Chaos is just a part of life apart from God because of the curse. You're living out the curse of sin, and that's why you're naked in a sense. Verse 6, you planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, and it's never enough. You drink, and you just never have your fill. He says you are thirsty all the time. You're hungry all the time. You're working hard, and you're making so little, he says. You, you put on clothes, and you're just not warm. You're just, you just feel exposed and naked all the time. You earn your wages, he says, but it's like you put your money in a purse with holes in it. Very vivid imagery. He says, you're bankrupt, you see? That's your life. Remember, the people of God at this point, they've not committed any grave errors. There's no breaking of major laws, no injustices. They weren't a wicked people. They were prospering. And in their prospering, they have abandoned their first love. They've abandoned the God who has been faithful, who gave them and gave and gave and gave and poured out his life for them. They abandoned him. You see that? God's been on the periphery. He's homeless. Well, that's the charge. Where's the promise? What's the hope? In verse 12, the people of God, they obey and they fear the Lord. In verse 13, God says, I am with you. I never left. But notice, notice, God doesn't say, I'm with you because you're so good. I'm with you because, oh, now you turned around. Now you're going to, now you obey. He hasn't even told them what to do yet, in a sense. In reality, the temple, it wasn't finished for another four years. So the promise couldn't have been because they obeyed so faithfully. The obedience was a response to a remembering. They're remembering who God is. It's a response to the covenantal promise that God made from the beginning. From the beginning, since the Garden of Eden, that God would be present for them. And one day, all sin would be crushed. And, and these these empty desires that promise much and deliver so little, all of this will be crushed. He says it's going to come to an end one day. That's the promise. He says my presence is going to be with you. I've never abandoned you. Verse 8, what God says is I want you to go and get this wood. I want you to bring it down from the mountain. I want you to build the house. But anybody who's now looking back on history knows that the temple would be destroyed again. I mean, the temple actually gets torn down again years later. So what about this promise? In John chapter 1, centuries later, the author says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, 
and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. That word dwell there in the Greek is literally, literally the word for templed. He tabernacled among us. He templed among us. In other words, the presence of God, the Word, Jesus Christ, is the presence of God, the literal, visible, audible, touchable, relatable presence of God, intimately dwelling with his people. He became flesh. But all the while, Jesus says, you know what he says in, in Matthew chapter 8? Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man is no place to rest his head. In other words, I'm homeless. I've got no home. I'm with you. I came, I, I gave up everything. I gave up my home. I gave up my status. I gave up my wealth to be with you, to give you, to give. Later in John chapter 3, Jesus comes in, he, he clears the temple, and the authorities, they come up to him, and they're angry, and Jesus says, tear down this temple, and I will build it again in three days. And they go, huh? I don't, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days? But John writes, but the temple that he had spoken of was his body. You know what that means? Jesus is saying, I'm clearing away the temple because I am the ultimate temple. One day there'll be no need for temples. Jesus, God says, I want you to go, get the wood, bring it down, raise the house, and the temple will be torn down. So Jesus himself came down, and he carries the wood. He carries the cross. Here, Jesus carries the ultimate burden of the wood of judgment. And instead of bringing it down from the mountain, he goes up the mountain of Calvary, and there he builds the eternal temple. How do we know that? How does it happen? On the cross, Jesus Christ. This is the most obedient person who ever lived. God was always at the core of his life. God was always at the center. He always perfectly obeyed. God was his ultimate priority, and he had ultimate access to God, ultimate intimacy. I mean, he was so intimate, he said what? My father and I, we are one. And yet on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I've been abandoned. I am experiencing now cosmic homelessness. The presence of God has departed from me. He has abandoned me and rejected me, and now I am bankrupt. I am in ruins. This is the ultimate nakedness. This is the ultimate poverty and bankruptcy, he says. This is, he's thirsting and longing for God, and he says, it's, he's out of reach. I'm dying of thirst. He says, I thirst. You see that? So on the cross, you see him groaning. On the cross, you see him toiling. On the cross, you see him sweating and working. On the cross, you see him bleeding and dying. Why? Because he is experiencing, he is taking on the ultimate curse. He's taking the full brunt of the curse of God. Why? So we could have the promise and the blessing of God. Jesus Christ was separated from God. Why? So that the presence of God will be with you for all time. Jesus experienced the ultimate hunger on the cross longing for God. Why? He says he is the bread of life. You can eat of him and be completely satisfied for all time. On the cross, he says, I thirst. Why? So that we could be quenched. That the righteousness that we desire and seek, the approval, that's what righteousness is, is ours. And that's why the psalmist, uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, blessed are those, what? Who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? You will be filled. 
Jesus Christ was stripped naked on the cross. In other words, he was cold. There was nothing. We, you know, God says, you get clothes and you put it on and it's like you're still naked. Jesus Christ was stripped naked on the cross so that we receive the warmth of his embrace. We are covered by him, in him, by his blood. Jesus Christ was abandoned and he died. Why? So that we would have ultimate access. He becomes our king and he becomes our high priest. He replaces all kings and high priests in a sense so that we, our lives could be ordered and so that our worship can be reconciled and ordered. Because Jesus Christ made God his priority, ultimate priority, even to the point of death. Because of his love for the Father, he be, we become his love. We become his priority. And to the degree that you believe that, to the degree that you trust that, then Jesus becomes your priority. And you will turn your attention to caring for his house. You are his house. He dwells with you. Your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. You get to be intimate with God. You get to reside with God. You get to be one with God. And if you do, that union with Christ brings you towards union with his body. You will care for his people. You will care for his church. God says, consider this. Reassess. Rethink this. See it. Assess it. Make that your vision. Let's pray together as we enter into just our our ministry update.